It's Locked on NBA. I'm David Locke. Thank you very much. Part two coming up with Ben Falk. He was so gracious with his time. If you could send him a thank you at Ben C. Falk, F-A-L-K, that would be great. At Ben C. Falk. Uh, we always like to thank our guests for coming on the show. It's a signature that is different about Locked on NBA. You guys are so incredible about doing it. So I really, really appreciate that. If you could, this conversation with Ben includes a breakdown of individual players and impact on t- uh, teammates have on them, where front offices most often make their mistake, my belief in small standard deviation of players with a discussion about Anthony Davis, a defensive player that would be an offensive MVP if he had the same impact, and what playoff numbers work. Today's show is brought to you in part by Seat. Geek. We so appreciate SeatGeek's support of the Lockdown Podcast Network. In fact, we used SeatGeek the other day to go see the Washington Capitals play the Vancouver Canucks. That was a fun little hockey game we went to while we were in town. And how do we do it? To have the SeatGeek app down on our phone, went to the settings tab, entered in the promo code LOCKED. I'm allowed to use it too. Got the ticket score, looked at my ticket scores, found the best ones in the lower bowl. We got great seats for a pretty good price, 70 bucks, and we were behind the net uh, about a few rows up bunch rose up but it was great and felt so good about it because it was secure and safe on my phone knew the ticket score compiled all the tickets from all the areas and that's why seat geeks the best number one because they compile all the tickets from around two those ticket scored allow me to understand how to uh, find a ticket in the capital one arena that i didn't know and number three it was safe and secure on my phone i used the promo code locked and i got a 20 dollars rebate so go to your app store, download the SeatGeek app, go to the settings tab, enter in the promo code LOCKED, and you can do the same. Thanks for sending the thank you to Ben Falk. Here's part two of our conversation on Locked on NBA. You are Locked on the NBA, part of the Locked on Podcast Network. I've tried to study this, Ben. I'm not as good as you. I mean, I'm just an amateur when I'm playing around with this stuff, but my brain keeps me up at night. And so I've tried to study individual players efficiency after moving teams and i find very little variance like i'm always stunned at how like what i mean this is a minor player but we just did bob mute is the exact same as he was a year ago <laughs> and, I, and even like jeff hornacek is one of the few he went and what he went from phoenix to philly he was the same he went to stockton malone okay and so that changed i remember that one but it's always stunning to me how similar Carmelo, I think, this year is almost exactly the same as he, efficiency-wise as what he was in New York. So I think that you have to look at uh, when players change roles, not just teams, um, which is, you know, if, if a player becomes, uh, if he's used differently than he was, in, uh, you know, if he's used differently in one place than he was in another, um, how that changes. Um, and so I think that you would find... I mean, Carmelo is an interesting example, right? Uh, Carmelo is kind of undergoing that. I think it's complicated by the fact that um, he's fitting in with new teammates. He's in a new system. He's getting older. Uh, and so it's, it's not necessarily apples to apples. But he has um, a, a, a smaller role. He's creating less. He's assisted more. And so we expect that his efficiency increase. Um, there's also an aspect of just kind of the randomness of, of some numbers. Um, so... If we're, if we're saying that Carmelo is taking more threes and more threes uh, off the pass, which is which are both true this year, um, then a lot of his overall efficiency will be dictated by, okay, well, is he shooting better from three? And the samples just 
aren't always big enough, especially at this point in the year, to for that um, you know to bear out uh, necessarily. Um, and so you know, I, th- I would think that over a longer period of time, if you said somebody like Carmelo and and you said, okay, now he's taking fewer difficult fadeaway uh, mid-range shots out of the post, and now he's shooting more wide-open spot-up threes, that his efficiency would change. Um, I think that what you're kind of keying in on is that somebody like Carmelo, it takes something radical for them to actually change their style of play and their role, um, even when changing teams. It takes a situation like he's in where he's getting older and he goes to a team uh, with other offensive focal points and he needs to adjust his game. Um, and I think for the most part, when players change teams, so Luke Bamute, um, clearly, you know, the teams, the, the teammates that he plays with, uh, affect his overall numbers. But at the same time, his, his, uh, role in terms of how he plays on offense hasn't changed from, from, uh, LA to Houston. I also, I picked up on this a little bit because I sometimes think the hubris of front office is what leads to mistakes. We'll get him and we'll make him different. Like, oh, he'll be different in our system. Yeah, not so sure about that. Feel like that's where feel like that's where most mistakes are made, right? Evan Turner, efficiency is the exact same as it was in Boston, and it's not good. Uh, Ricky Rubio, frankly, efficiency is right now the exact same, just not. So I'm not taking a shot at somebody else. You know, I just see this. I just see this a lot, and I've seen it for years. Where I hear front offices talk about, well, that player in our system, and I think to myself, like, you know. The system is still the elbow's got to be in and the ball's got to leave his hands. And, and and the efficiency I see changing all very, very rarely when players switch teams. I think it's a fascinating concept. I could be way wrong on this, too. I mean, I I got a lot of thoughts. They aren't always right. I just say them. <laughs> well, so, I, I mean, I think this is, again, this is what's fun about basketball. There's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of complexity involved um, where, you know, you're not sure exactly um, – you know, what to point to. So, you know, what, what do you make of like Isaiah Thomas going to Boston? Um, and he was very efficient. There were a lot of indications even before he went to Boston that he could be a relatively high level player. Um, but obviously he still took a step forward and doing what he did last year where his usage was at a career high, his efficiency was at a career high. How much do you credit that to the system that they run in Boston? Um, to playing with uh, somebody like Al Horford, who can play center and still spread the the court, um, versus his own improvement uh, versus something else. It's a great question. Great question. I'd have to run my Isaiah Thomas numbers and see what he was in back to Sacramento, and then what he was, and see how different he how he was, or did he just get more possessions? Or um, and that's a skill in itself, right? That uh, the ability to use possessions. Great. Uh, one thing that I Sometimes I try to listen to coaches and hear what they have to say, and then from there try to figure out a number or a stat for the for what the coach is talking about, if that makes sense. So one mm-hmm. of the examples is a coach. Um, I, I might have been Nate McMillan who used to talk about, I just need guys I can pan in. I just need guys I can pan in. And what he meant by that is if you're going to average 15 points a game, give me 15. Don't give me 25 one night. And five the next. That 25 one night and five the next means I'm losing when you give me five. So I've tried to study, to some extent, standard deviation of offensive performance, but then Kobe drops 81, and that screws everything way up on your standard <laughs> deviation. Have you looked at this at all, 
the idea of the pan-in player versus the high-variance bell curve player? So I haven't studied this, um, but it's, it's a great idea for something to look into. Um, I've heard the same thing from lots of different coaches uh, that you know consistency is something that they're constantly asking for from their team. Um, and I think part of that gets to just the challenge of being a coach at any level, really, uh, which is that you don't really know what you can count on. And it often felt like, um, you know, working with various coaches that you're playing a big game of whack-a-mole where you identify one area as a problem. And so you, you know, you figure out drills, you figure out schemes, you figure out all these ways that you're going to solve it and you really focus on it. And lo and behold, you make real progress. And while you're doing that, something else popped up, right? Um, and so I think it's the same thing from kind of from a player level is coaches, because of the nature of the problem that they're dealing with, um, would love to be able to say, okay, I just don't even have to think about that right now, right? I know that this player is going to give me this every night, and so I don't have to worry about that, and I can kind of design around that um, and strategize around that. And um, I don't know that that's really the nature of players in general. Clearly, there are some players who are more consistent than others, but I think it's kind of part of basketball and part of performance um, you know, from a hum- human perspective that there's just lots of ups and downs and it, it's hard to be consistent across various nights and various cities and various opponents. Um, and so, so that's one aspect to this. The other aspect is that it kind of depends what type of team you are. Um, and so the better teams obviously want more consistency because they have players who are better. But if you're a worse team, you know, you want a player who, uh, you know, can go off for 50 one night, even if he doesn't do that all the time. Obviously, you'd want him to average 50, right? Um, but uh, if you have a player who has, you know, instead of saying this guy is going to give me 10 points every single night, if he gives me not that much, you know, some nights and then really explodes other nights, that can also be valuable um, because it just gives you the chance to win games that you might not otherwise win. So we ran, one of my listeners ran this for me. And we did the top 30 scores in the league last year. And I thought what we found was interesting. Our, the lowest standard deviation was LeBron James. It's as though he goes and gets his 28 and just calls it good. <laughs> right. Like if he wanted 35, he could go get it. Our highest standard deviation made me think a little bit. It was Anthony Davis. <laughs> and the thought I had on it, I might be, again, you know, who knows, um, was we see the bottom line on ESPN on him all the time because we don't see a lot of Pelican games. 35, 21, oh, oh my gosh, AD's incredible. And then they lose the next night to Sacramento, and you're not really sure why because on the bottom line it didn't say 16, 9, and 1. And I wonder if there's something too other than, you know, obviously his roster around him is not great that maybe that's part of the reason why the Pelicans sit at 20 and 20 again this year. That's interesting. Um, You know, I'd have to dig into it deeper. I think that, you know, to me, one of the things that might jump out is just whether he's more reliant on teammates to get his points. Um, You know, so the image that pops to mind of of Anthony Davis when he can be incredibly effective, obviously he can play one-on-one and um, he's talented, but his just that sprinting down the lane um, and flying through the air and catching a lob and how much he impacts, um, you know, the way defenses strategize because of that threat. Um, Whereas somebody like LeBron is not depending on teammates. He's controlling the ball the whole time. And so what he does is just based on himself. Um, Anthony Davis might be much more dependent on defenses, you know, how they're strategizing 
um, you know, how they're playing him and, and teammates. And that might end up in a, in a very widespread of, of his scoring games. What numbers do you trust? What are your what are your go tos? Like you mentioned when you talked to Andrew Wiggins, so you looked at on floor, off floor. Uh, do you is that do you buy on floor? I hear a little different noise on that from people. Do you buy lineup data? Is there any of the stats view stuff that you kind of think really has value? What are what are the Ben Falk or the numbers that are on cleaningtheglass.com? What are the items that you really look at and you say, you know what, this is what I check on players and teams. So I'm probably not going to give you the answer that you want, but I think that I think you should be skeptical of all numbers until you really study them and understand how they change over time, where they come from, how they're measured. Um, I think that with every number, uh, there's going to be ways that they're skewed or biased in, in, in certain directions. And you really have to know you can't just rely on it and say, OK, you know what? I know for sure that this is uh, what I think it is. Um, and so because of the complexity of basketball, the more you try to do with certain numbers, the more you have to kind of raise an eyebrow at them. So if you're talking about the on-court versus off-court stuff, that's very powerful because it promises a way to get at basically to summarize all of a player's impact. So we talk about Andrew Wiggins and we can say um, there's something there maybe that he's doing that's not showing up in a lot of the other ways that we try to count and measure his production. That said, they're also dangerous because they're there's so much that they're trying to summarize that they can be tricked and fooled in a lot of ways, and they can trick and fool you. And you really have to be very careful uh, with on-off-court numbers um, to really make sure that they're telling you an accurate story. And um, the, the real question is a lot of when we're talking about this stuff, there, there's two aspects when we look at a number. We're saying in the past, it's descriptive of what happened in the past, and then in the future, it's predictive of what will happen in the future. And most of the time when we're using um, things for decisions, we're, we care about the predictive side. Uh, we don't really care about what happened in the past except for what it's going to tell us about the future because we're trying to use it uh, to make a trade or to make a decision um, you know, about how we're going to defend a player that night. And um, because of that, you start to get it, you kind of have to look into how these numbers change over time, um, you know, how in the past they've predicted the future. Um, you know, what the pitfalls could be. And so with somebody like Wiggins, or, or Rubio is maybe a great example, um, since you brought him up, he was somebody who in Minnesota, consistently his team was much better when he was on the court versus off. And again, that didn't necessarily square with his individual numbers. Obviously, the concern about shooting, he was not an efficient player. Um, but it seemed like he was doing something that was really helping an offense. And so if you if you are the Jazz and you're looking at acquiring him, uh, you need to know okay, how likely is that to predict the future if we, we do acquire him. Um, you know, sure enough, this year when they played him, particularly in lineups with Favors and Gobert, there just was not that much shooting on the court, and that disappeared. Right, the the liabilities that seemed that like they were clear from uh, his individual statistics really showed up in the team numbers as well um, because the context changed to some degree. Um, and so that's kind of the approach I think you have to take with, with all these numbers is um, understand what they're telling you, understand where they can be valuable. Um, generally, if you have a longer track record, more of a sample size, if you see that Rubio has played for many different teams, many different coaches with many different teammates, and it's always showed up that he's had this impact, you have much more confidence um, that there's something real there. It's not just you know kind of randomness or a fluke. 
Um, and it's something that can stand up across uh, different places, different contexts. Whereas if it's something where it's like one year a player has a great plus minus, um, you might be a lot more skeptical. All right, so I want to just give you a fun hypothetical. You'll get it, and then we'll probably wrap this up. Uh, Ben's been great. So if if I told you about a player who, when he was on the floor offensively, his team had an offensive rating of 109. By the way, for those who aren't comfortable with the numbers, call 110 best in the league, about 106.7 average, and 100 is the worst in the league offensively, just to make it easy. So 109 when he's on the floor. When he's off the floor, they're at 96.5. Like, holy smokes, there's a 12-point-per-100-possession difference for this guy when he's on and off the floor offensively. They go from, like, one of the best offensive teams, by far the worst. When he plays over 30 minutes uh, on the year, they're 8-5. and five. When he plays over 25 minutes in the year, they're about two or three games above 500. And when he, does, he doesn't do either of the things, they're actually a game below 500. We, we, he, he's missed four games recently, five games. The team's gone two and three. Like, we would talk about this guy like he's an MVP, right? Right. So, Andre Robertson can't score. So, everything I just said was about Andre Robertson and his defensive impact. Is he so bad offensively that he's actually valued correctly? Should he actually be in SI.com's top 100 players in the NBA? What is the value of Andre Robertson, who the Oklahoma City Thunder are 13 points per 100 possessions better defensively when he's on the floor, and despite the way it feels when he's on the floor, the more he plays, the better they do. So this is it's, it's a fantastic point, and this gets to exactly what we were talking about earlier, um, which is the way that I think, uh, I think front offices and coaches and, and the media in general and fans, I think can often overvalue the offensive side of the court. Um, you know, Robertson is, a, is just a fantastic example. And, you know, you talk about it this year, uh, I think maybe it's there's a slightly smaller sample, um, and so his, his impact seems a little more extreme, but it's not new, right? He's been doing this for years where his, you know, the Thunder have been much better defensively when he's on the court versus off. Um, and so, look, numbers are one way to try to value that. Um, and so on cleaningtheglass.com, there's a, a simple way. If you go to the stats site, you can see how a team's play has changed with a player on the court versus off. And Robertson, now this is the fourth consecutive year where the Thunder have been a reasonable amount better, um, basically three to five points per hundred possessions better when he's on the court than off, which over the course of a season um, is worth around 10 to 15 wins. Um, so, so... That's not saying that he's necessarily responsible for all that, but that's a big change is the point. And so that puts him, you know, if you look at all the players in the league that um, have that kind of impact, um, in any given season, that's about the 80th percentile. So better than 80% of the players in the league, that that, that number would be. Um, and to do that for four straight years is, is pretty impressive uh, to rank at that level. And so I agree with you. I think that, we would be talking about him if, if the sides of the ball that he was good on were flipped. We would be talking about him as one of the better players in the league. Um, I don't think we would say he's you know a superstar, um, but I think he would get a lot more acknowledgement for the value that he brings to the court and to his team than he currently does. Final question. I always point out that to make the playoffs, all you got to do is beat the bad teams. Miami's proving this beautifully right now. 
What is a good regular season indicator of what makes you a good playoff team? So it's a really fascinating question. Um, there, I think that there are different ways to get at this, and it's a little bit tricky. If you're looking at the history of the playoffs, um, obviously the nature of the NBA changes over time, and there aren't that many playoff games and playoff series. And so it's hard to get exactly uh, what you want. But I actually wrote about this around the playoff time um, on Cleaning the Glass, uh, which is that the, the nature of the playoffs change. It becomes much more of a defensive game. Um, it becomes the you know, home court advantage matters a lot more. And so uh, I think when you dig into the numbers, there are some indications that playing a style that is uh, maybe a little bit, um, let's see if the right way to put this, a little less risky, <laughs> Uh, a little bit more, uh, so a style like the Spurs have played um, in the past defensively, which is you are not trying to play this amped up pressure style defense. Instead, you're trying to consistently force teams into uh, difficult shots uh, that you then rebound and you don't foul. So um, playing uh, that kind of style helps you against teams that are higher skill offensively. So essentially, you have to look at um, you know, how do things change when you're playing the teams that are the highest skill level, right? Have the most talent. Um, and generally the, again, so this is kind of based a little bit on basketball theory and based a little bit on the numbers. Generally the teams that have played, um, you know, the higher pressure style defenses have been much more about being able to take advantage of lesser talent and lesser skill. Um, and teams that play like good defense that's a little bit more solid. Um, have have outperformed that uh, to some degree, um, but for the most part, uh, there's actually there's an interesting study on 538 as well, which is that um, it sounds kind of simple, but their conclusion was that winning, like having won in the past, helps you win in the future, right? That's more predictive, right? Um, which is this idea that so so from a statistical standpoint, a lot of times we look at point differential as a better indicator of team quality than wins and losses. Um, but the point, this is Benjamin Morris, he, um, again, he writes for 538. The point he had made in the past was that actually if you study it too, by the end of the season, that the ability to have one close games is actually indicative of future playoff success. Um, and then they've, you know, they've since followed up that study and said, okay, well, if you look even at past playoff success, that is also indicative of future playoff success. Um, and there's, there's various reasons why that might be the case. Uh, but essentially, uh, having a track record of having one series in the past, having one close games in the past, does seem to be a positive indicator of playoff success. Flip side true too, Chris Paul? <laughs> so if you're talking about uh, individuals, I think that's a lot harder. It's a lot harder line to draw. Um, I'm more skeptical of the idea of you know someone who's a playoff choker. Um Again, I, I wrote about this uh, back during the playoffs, and that one of the examples. I mean, I think a lot of times we think of players as playoff chokers until they suddenly aren't playoff chokers. So, you know, like Dirk Nowitzki was this guy who couldn't win in the playoffs. He wasn't mentally tough enough, and then he won a championship in a year where no one expected it. Um, and so the question is, maybe Dirk changed as a person, um, or but you know, we couldn't really predict that. And so, um, how much does the label of, of a choker help? <laughs> Uh, I don't really know if it's not helpful for you to be, you know, if it's not predictive in any way. Um, so I think it's very hard to draw any kind of line between individual choking playoff performance and uh, teams underperforming in the playoffs. 
Um, I think you could also make the case sometimes that players who are very good players can help their teams overperform in the regular season. And then when uh, the, the talent level and the opponent uh, ability increases in the playoffs, all of a sudden they're no longer overperforming. Their teammates are performing to the level you'd expect. And so it looks like they're not succeeding as much as you would think in the playoffs. But in reality, that's just because they overperform in the regular season. Um, but, you know, I think you'd have to study that more to, to really look into and say, are there teams that have long track records of losing? And does that suggest that they will continue to have those track records? I will just share with you, having participated in a seven-game series last year and then watching the rest of the playoffs, the mm-hmm. one thought I had last year on the playoffs was singular ball handlers crossing midcourt all the time get less efficient as a series goes on. So when you know Westbrook, Harden, and Chris Paul are the ones always bringing it up and almost always in a similar spot, and you do it over 700 possessions in a seven-game series or 600 in a si- – you know, and I know they're not on the floor for every one, but look at you. You're such a numbers guy. You're making me nervous. Um, <laughs> I just felt watching the playoffs last year that those teams had multiple ball handlers bring the ball up the floor at different spots on the floor had a huge value. I mean, I think it's a really interesting point. I think that the playoffs are fascinating to me because they are a different nature of basketball. You're playing the same opponent again and again, and it becomes much more of a chess match. And so to your point, predictability uh, can be a a negative. Um, And so maybe it's something that works well in the regular season because it gives you some of the consistency we were just talking about, um, and it makes it so that night-to-night and with not as much practice that you have kind of a solidity to the performance that you're getting um, in the playoffs that can backfire because now teams know what to expect and they're not thrown off guard. Um, there's more practice to prepare. There's ways that, you know, they start to know all the other team's sets. And so they know how to exactly how to kind of throw a, uh, throw a wrench in the gears. Um, and so I think that when you have more unpredictability, when you have a, a variety of threats, uh, I think that makes a lot of sense that you could um, overperform maybe expectations in the playoffs. Ben, a pleasure. Um, I'm, I'm hoping for the day in which I listen to someone say, how many is too many twos? Rather than every conversation being about when there's too many threes. <laughs> and I'll leave you with that thought. Okay, like, why, 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 why can't the other thing be asked? Fair enough. Ben, Fair enough. Thank you very much for the time. I really appreciate your generosity. Great work at cleaning the glass. You're making it all more enjoyable for us to be a fan. The stats are great, but I, I would tell you, I think the articles are must-reads. I think if you're a basketball fan, uh, you've got you've to read the articles. You've got to be a part of kind of the discussion to understand a little bit more uh, over at Clean the Glass. I'd strongly urge uh, people to go grab the subscription, $75 for a year. I, I think you'll feel comfortable uh, that you get your value out of it and uh, really appreciate the time. Keep up the great work, and uh, thanks for uh, you're kind of changing the business a little bit. I hope it goes well for you. Thanks so much, and thanks so much for having me. Remember, the website is cleaningtheglass.com. The Twitter account is at Ben C. Falk. If you could send him a thank you, we would certainly appreciate that. This has been Locked on NBA. Make sure you subscribe to your local NBA favorite podcast and visit and subscribe to Locked On of your individual team. It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.